I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads. Now, for nearly three decades, English has been the lingua franca of cross-border organizations. Yet studies on corporate language strategies and their importance for globalization have been scarce. In the language of global success, Professor Sadal Neely provides an in-depth look at a single organization, the high-tech giant Rakuten, in the five years following its English lingua franca mandate. Professor Neely's behind-the-scenes account explores how language shapes the ways in which employees work in a global organization, communicate and negotiate linguistic and cultural differences. Many of you don't know this, but I've been a big fan of her. I do a lot of cross-cultural work. And I've been reading a lot of her studies and her research focuses on the challenges that global collaborators face across national and linguistic borders. And we're here today to talk about her new book, The Language of Business Success, or The Language of Global Success, rather, as well as how to build a global team. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Pleasure is mine. Uh, pleasure is mine. This is a huge treat for me. And um, I'm just so curious as I am with, with with a lot of people, but how did you even get started into the you know into this work? So interestingly enough, uh, I am one of those reluctant academics. I was working for about ten years in different capacities uh, in sales, in technology, and in consulting, and at some point realized that I was really deeply interested in developing expertise around global work, global collaboration, uh, and ended up in uh, graduate school uh, at Stanford University, where I joined a research team looking at the experience of global teams across three countries. While I was uh, an apprentice there, I discovered how emotionally charged and visceral Uh, It was for people to try to engage one another across differences, across geographies, across uh, national boundaries, across cultural and local practices. 
and became completely obsessed with the idea of how do we develop content that will make it easier for people all over the world to work together uh, in, in, in a much more cohesive way. And so when I ended up here at the Harvard Business School, I took on uh, those questions, those projects, advisory roles, consulting, in order to really understand uh, this, this domain. That's how I kind of got started. I saw it wow. real uh, uh, visceral. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is it is so fascinating for me to hear you say that because, you know, with my background, we share a little bit about that. M- mine was when I was this 10-year-old kid who yeah. had just come from a military dictatorship in Nigeria and found himself as a skinny kid in a, with a Nigerian accent in a French-speaking country <laughs> in an American international school going through puberty. And I, wow. I, I remember I was like, oh, gosh, um, it was out of survival. I wanted to make friends. <laughs> I wanted to join a sports team. I wanted to make sure that I was cool so that uh, I thought maybe girls would like me a little bit, but I felt weird and insecure. <laughs> um, and they didn't. And, and, you know, and it gradually, once I started to really find myself, I saw that I was able to just to, you know, yeah. connect across cultures through sports, through, uh, several things. And I just became fascinated from then on because, um, I don't know if you know much about Nigeria, but Nigeria is yeah. one of the most globalized. I'm one of the most diverse places in the world, over 250 ethnic groups, over like 500 languages. But people, a lot of times, sometimes have a lot of differences. And then you extrapolate that to the world. I was like, I'm going to be the one that bridges this divide. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Absolutely. I mean, our biographies and autobiographies do shape where we end up and the way our perceptions are built. That's, 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 uh, that's a really uh, interesting background and experience and how great that you were able to create the bridges despite the fact that you were this young skinny kid <laughs> trying, trying to engage others and now you're you're helping others do the same I, I think that's so cool uh, thank you I, but it doesn't hold a candle to your career but I, and, and you are a legend and you should be known uh-huh. everyone needs to go check out her work because she has um, a, a mighty pen and and so, and, and even make me smile here. You're making me smile. <laughs> Try not to blush. Thank you so much. That's so kind. No, it, it's the truth. I mean, I mean, I, I can't even express enough how many articles of yours I've read. But w- w- with your career, you know, it, it, this yeah. phenomenon is here. Increasingly, almost every team you said this yeah. before is a global team in some capacity, and yes. this presents this difficult challenge for managers everywhere, and especially high potential leaders who want to make their careers. Um, you know, elevate on the next level. So how do you suggest we bring a team whose members are geographically and culturally dispersed successfully? Well, the first thing that you have to understand is is that global teams, no matter what, will have uh, this issue of what we call social distance by the sheer fact that you have geographical dispersion, that you have cultural differences, that you have linguistic differences, that you have time zone differences, uh, you're going to be dealing with social distance or psychological distance, which is defined as the lack of cognitive or emotional connection that people will uh, will deal with uh, uh, across borders, meaning I could be situated here in Boston, Massachusetts, where I am right now, and I can have a teammate in London and another teammate in Hong Kong. By the sheer fact that we're situated in these different places, a natural but detrimental aspect of our relationship will include this social distance. Mm -hmm. And 
Yeah, and so the work of every team member and especially team leader is to find ways to shrink social distance by enacting behaviors that will bring people closer together. For example, leaders have to be attuned to the fact that geographical differences create this us versus them sentiment that is exacerbated by this existing social distance that they need to shrink. So they need to make sure that people feel, despite their geographical location, that they're part of one team. You have to message this notion that we're not fragmented geographically, but we are part of one team. Leaders have to ensure that their members have an occasion to have informal contact with one another, even virtually. Leaders have to ensure that every member is communicating in a way that draws everyone in, despite language fluency differences. Mm. Leaders have to ensure that there's mutual adaptation taking place, uh, despite differences in self-definitions or identities. For example, nowadays we're seeing a lot of geopolitical tensions uh, with team members, just, just by the sheer fact of our zeitgeist, you know, the world changes, things happen. Next thing you know, you have team members who end up uh, working together, but their nations have been at war or fighting or in tension for a long time. How do you deal with that as a, as a, as a, as a leader? Um, and finally, an important thing to keep in mind is what technology do you use to engage each other? Man. The reality is, Technology is not a neutral uh, uh, conduit to engage with one another. Certain technologies are much more effective than others depending on what you're trying to achieve, whether you need to have a real live conversation or send out emails. All of these things you have to be deliberate about. And and, um, uh, I've written about this extensively, and you're probably thinking about my split framework that, co- that covers everything that I just said, yeah. structure, uh, process, language, identity, and technology as a means to bridge and to create an effective global team. That's, that's fascinating to me. And, and so where can people find out more about that split work? Because it's, you know, I'm sure right. you're, you gave us a primer here. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about, so how do I, what technology should I use or how can I incorporate that? I want more practical tips. So I'm curious where, where we could refer them to to get so, more of that. So my website, sadal.com, T-S-E-D is in David, A-L.com, is a depository of all of my articles, all of my uh, uh, talks, uh, anything and everything will be right there. It's a great place to find anything that you need. It really is. It really is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, It's it's amazing. Uh, Let's talk about your your work with, I feel like I'm going to butcher this, Uh, Rakuten. Yes, you got it, Rakuten. Yes, Rakuten. Okay, so prior to 2010, Rakuten had been a multilingual global company, right? These, this was a Japanese-based company. The employees, uh, right. at least the, the headquarters was in Tokyo. And so yes. they communicated in Japanese. And then there was yes. this mandate to make English the lingua franca? Yes. Okay, so talk to me about what, why you decided to focus on them for the book and you know, so, what happened. Yes, so, so, so Rakuten, you can think of Rakuten as the Amazon, eBay, Expedia, uh, Airbnb of Japan. So Rakuten is the place where people in Japan go 
for any all of their e-commerce needs. And in 2010, the CEO of Rakuten, Hiroshi Mikitani, uh, uh, really needed to accelerate his global expansion because he was nearing 90% market share dominance in Japan. When you have that level of market share dominance, you can't grow in this particular market. You've got to look outside of uh, that market. You have to go global. How do you go global with a workforce who can't engage with others because of language barriers, cultural barriers, etc.? And so he decided that the most important strategy that he needed to ensure um, uh, for his company at that time was to change the working language in order to create the conditions for uh, globalization efforts. Wow. And so he mandates it for 7,000 Japanese employees. They had about 3,000 non-Japanese employees at the time. And because he is a celebrity CEO, a very interesting company, I really wanted to know how this would work. And I've been following it now for five years, and the results have been extraordinary mm. from a globalization standpoint. And you may not know Rakuten, but Rakuten, uh, the name Rakuten, which means optimism, by the way, but they own Ebate. Uh, if you've ever used Ebate, that's a Rakuten company. They're the largest shareholder of Lyft. If you've ever taken a Lyft ride, you're a Rakuten user. If you've ever uh, used Viber, that's a Rakuten company. Wow. They're actually uh, quite prominent nowadays, and they're the FC Barcelona main sponsor. So instead of Qatar Air, uh, now it says Rakuten on Messi's jersey. Are you are you into soccer? I'm I'm huge. Uh, I, I, you know, although I'm a Ronaldo over Messi guy, but yes, I am. <laughs> you Ronaldo guy. All right. Well, well, when 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 you see Messi, he's gonna have a Rakuten jersey on. He does. You know. Now that you yes. say it, I have the memory. You know, you were saying it, and I was like, I watch a lot of soccer. Soccer was my first love before basketball. Uh, <laughs> took over. But yeah, it's funny how memory works. You said it, and I'm like, oh yeah. I did see You've that. Seen it. Yeah. You've seen it. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, if, if you want to engage your second love of basketball, you're going to see Rakuten, their, their, their logo on Steph Curry's jersey, oh as well as the other guys, because they're now the key sponsor, not only for the Golden State Warriors, but they're also the National Basketball Association uh, NBA's uh, entertainment arm. Wow. This is Rakuten. So they've been able to explode globally once they decided we are going to globalize our workforce by shifting this language and uh, creating a, a global culture, so to speak. Yeah. No. So, so this type of orientation can be incredibly valuable to to cultivate for anyone who's working for multinationals because you have yes. such a company with with their fingerprints everywhere. Like you have the tentacles everywhere. everywhere. And everywhere. Listen, when I started to look at them in 2010, they might have had about 200 uh, uh, million customers. They were the dominant players I mentioned earlier in Japan. Today, they have over 1.1 billion users. Oh my gosh, it's insane. Well, then I, yeah. I imagine there must have been a lot of challenges. I mean, these are people from different countries, and you're saying that there has to be one lingua franca. And so, how does that even work? How do you get people? on the yeah. same page and just, yeah. you know, how do you do that? You, 
Oh man, you're absolutely right. It's very, very, very challenging. There's a learning curve. And in fact, in my book and in my recently launched TED Talk, uh, if you want to spend 14 minutes listening to uh, the story of Rakuten and the key lessons, you can, you can check it out there. Uh, I actually end up seeing that there are three types of global employees that emerge depending their starting point, whether they were uh, English speakers to begin with or not. And so uh, let me tell you about them. Yes, First please. of all, you have the Japanese employees who worked and lived their entire lives in Japan who suddenly have to adopt a non-native language for everyday work. So that group struggled extensively with learning the language of English, with using the language of English. The workload went up, anxiety went up, and um, language shock went up. But within two years, that changed. That was the beauty of the study in that I had five years to follow and see what happened. Within two years, not only were they communicating with all of their counterparts anywhere in the world, but they started to use English as a conduit for their Japanese corporate culture. English became the means for them to convey their corporate values in new and meaningful ways. So all of the other subsidiaries were now aligned around the corporate culture of the company for the first time. Wow. Huh. Group number two, yeah. Group number two were the U.S. employees in New York, in California, the, the, the employees who are English native speakers, who in the beginning were really excited. It's like, wow, they're now going to speak our language. We have won. And saying things like, we've got that box checked. And sure, they had that box checked. But within two years, things changed. Because the Japanese headquartered employees were now engaging the U.S. employees in new ways. There was more demand for uh, work and engagement and interactions. The workload went up in the U.S. And number two, the Japanese corporate cultural practices showed up in forceful ways for the first time. Mm. I'll tell you a story. This big encyclopedic size regulatory uh, uh, and culture book showed up in the New York offices for the first time. And there were all sorts of demands that they never knew existed part of the corporate culture. Now they had to adhere to it. And then thirdly, I always say, say this, when people begin to speak to one another, trouble comes. So you have all sorts of cultural clashes and ways that people have to grow and develop in order to engage one another uh, without all of the tensions that you can imagine uh, with cross-cultural engagement. And then there's a third group. This third group were employees from Brazil and France and Germany and Taiwan. These are people who are neither Japanese natives nor U.S. natives. So they had to learn the Japanese corporate culture and this new language. Yeah. How do you think they did, if you had to guess? <laughs> I imagine it, might, it was probably really difficult for them. Uh, and yeah. 
Did they do well? I, I'm almost tempted to say they surprisingly did better than the English and the Japanese cultures, but I, I don't know why I'm saying that. <laughs> so, 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 so you're saying that because you've got the right instincts. Yes. In the beginning, in the beginning, it was difficult. They had to learn a lot. They had to really climb these learning curves, linguistic and cultural. But at the end, they adapted much better than these other two groups. They were flexible. They were open. They, in fact, in my mind, showed to be the most effective global employee of the century. They were great. So I'll tell you why I, I it caught on, and that was my instinct. Because I, I'm that person you described. Yes. <laughs> Because yes. I'm the Nigerian, right? Everybody thinks I'm African American when I'm coming yes. here. Uh, I, but you know, I was—I just told you the story of how I had a yes. different accent. I had to fit in French, speaking in American, and I was like, okay, all right, I gotta get that. But yeah, you just—it just becomes. Yeah. It was initially challenging for sure. Yeah. But wow. You were, motiva- you were motivated to make it work, though. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, it was—it was not just a survival instinct for me. I—I've also—I'm the oldest of three boys, and I, I felt like uh, you know. At the time I was growing up, Nelson, I was, you know, Nelson Mandela was still alive and he was doing oh. what he was doing. And then Oprah Winfrey. So I felt those are my two biggest influences. So oh. I just like I wanted to do the same thing for my generation. But wow. Huh. Oh. That's so, amazing. No, yeah. but, but this is I'm glad you did this research because you're you're highlighting a, f- a few things. And so if we take away the, 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 the group that adapted eventually the most, you're talking about yes. two steep learning curves here where the Japanese yes. employees, you know, they're already fluent in their Japanese concepts. Uh, Kaizen, exactly. Kaizen, right? Kaizen and Omotenashi. Uh, exactly. And Kaizen, for those listening, is, is, is called, it's improvement and Omotenashi is hospitality. So they were fluent in these, exactly. uh, these things, but they struggled to become proficient in English. All right. And then the Americans who were fluent in English struggled to become comfortable with the new work routines and expectations from Japan. So, exactly. wow. <laughs> it, exactly. And the third group, I call them dual expats. They had to do both. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness! This this is like this is the best way for me to to start my day because I love diving into this. So then, you know, this global work orientation. How yes. would that work? Because if you're a leader of this company and you are not culturally intelligent enough to understand that there, there are these things that exist, and yes. even with the dual expats. There, there are subcultures within that because someone from Brazil doesn't mean that they act the same way from, from a, someone from France or someone from Germany or someone from Indonesia. So how do you make sure it's not a watered-down orientation process and you still get your processes um, and yeah. your goals you know, max, uh, realized? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Yes. So, so here's the thing. When, when you're a global employee, and this idea of global work orientation that you're uh, describing is an added, a set of attitudes and behaviors that people adopt in order to work effectively uh, across national boundaries. And global work orientation is not about losing yourself. It's about adapting to others and having the attitudes and the behaviors uh, to do so. I'll give you uh, an example of uh, a very effective means to engage others without getting in the way. One of the five characteristics of global work orientation uh, I call positive indifference. Being, being capable of having positive indifference is to be able to engage with something that make, make you uncomfortable that's culturally different from you, that may show a different value than the one that you believe in, but yet having the capacity to remain benevolent or positive about it while diminishing your resistance to it. Indifference diminishes your resistance to something and you say, this is different, this is uncomfortable, but no big deal, I'll try this. The best global employees not only are capable to engage with something that's uncomfortable, that's different, that stretches their um, comfort level, but they're also capable of saying, okay, not a big deal. This is something I'll just try. The opposite of this is all-out resistance, which is what you end up getting uh, all of the time. This is different from me. I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to resist. Ah, I don't like this. But if you say to yourself, I'm going to have this benevolent uh, attitude and don't put so much weight into this action or activity or this requirement that's in front of me. Let me just try it. You experience it very differently. That's one of the aspects of global work orientation. And as you know, in the book, I go at length in uh, describing and providing lots of examples of how to think about this. And so adopting global work orientation for anyone is not only good, I think it's necessary. Yeah, no, it is so necessary today. I mean, yes. it, it, I mean, it, it's so all, always been necessary, but it's necessary today. Interestingly, we, I, you know, for those listening, uh, we're, we're talking to a professor here, so she she's not just an amazing speaker and author, but she she teaches at Harvard, the Harvard. So I, I'm curious <laughs> as I'm curious as as to when you talk about how necessary it is, you are at arguably yeah. the most prestigious university of all time. So how do you students react to what's been going on in the world today? And how do they resonate with your message? Do they feel empowered or do they feel discouraged? You know, our, our students, first of all, are just amazing. They're thoughtful. Uh, they, they not only are aware uh, about, you know, the, the current affairs, uh, but they're also quite active. Uh, and uh, not only are they talking about things, but they're engaged in all sorts of activities in order to uh, give back to the world. The mission of the Harvard Business School, the stated mission, the stated mission of the Harvard Business School is that we develop leaders who make a difference in the world. So this idea of engaging whatever uh, is important or salient in current affairs and otherwise 
for our students is um, a reality. So they, they engage it and they uh, participate in all sorts of activities, whether it's raising money for Puerto Rico or thinking about how uh, do we think about women at the workplace, given all that we're seeing uh, uh, percolate uh, with sexual harassment and hostility. They're talking about those things and preparing themselves. So I think the best thing that we can do as um, uh an institution and people uh, here is to understand what's happening, to respond as best as we can, and to ultimately become better leaders as a result of the new insights that uh, we develop. Right, right. And um, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Professor Neely here, who is the author of The Language of Global Success, How a Common Tongue Transforms Multinational Organizations. The book is out. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Um, and she's also a professor at Harvard. And another thing that she does, I've told you, she's such a dynamic lady here. She she does speaking <laughs> and consulting. And before we go into the speaking and consulting, you recently had a TED, TED Talk. Um, I'm definitely going to dive into that. Um, you and I, we share a pigmentation, right? We, yes. we, we are uh, black uh, professionals yes. in, in this world and a lot of times yes. when you know we talk about representation and people telling our stories the right way. It is admittedly frustrating for me to um, not see enough of us out there being uh, celebrated or talked about. I remember this mm. got this reached the, <laughs> its peak moment for me when I saw the movie Hidden Figures, mm. and and I was just increasingly frustrated because that happened a while ago, and I didn't know why I didn't learn that during the time I learned that about Neil Armstrong, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you feel about people of color. How do you feel like people of color? today can maximize today's resources to tell the stories more prominently? Well, I think, you know, from, from where I sit, as, as you mentioned, I, I am deeply interested in education and what that does uh, for people. So I think for people of color, we really need to work hard to equip ourselves to push as far as, as we can uh, intellectually, get our education, get a seat at the table, uh, ask questions, push boundaries, bring expertise. Uh, those things are very, very important. It's very difficult, though, because as you know, a lot of our institutions don't uh, have the history of uh, a diverse talent pool that they've been able to tap and groom and nurture. So a lot of us uh, end up being the only one or the only two or the only ten uh, in an organization. Uh, some of us are minorities, some of us are super minorities, which requires us to be even much more excellent than you can imagine. So I'm always, in talking to uh, folks of color, saying that we have got to strive for excellence. We need to bring excellence, we need to get at the table, and we need to continue to equip ourselves uh, so that uh, we can shape the agenda and the decisions that are made no matter where we are. We need to be present, and in order to be present, we need to be equipped. In order to be equipped, we need to strive for excellence. They're all connected to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And the way and that, that why, that's why I brought this speaking and consulting you do because that segues into that because I don't know yeah. I know you get this a lot more than I do but sometimes when I speak at events I'll have some people stay behind and, the, and a lot yeah. of times either fellow internationals or people yes. of color and they'll just you know they, they'll they'll wait for everyone to leave and then they'll talk like you know thank you for 
just showing up. I didn't realize there was a role for me there, or I didn't know that I could do that. And I bring you speaking and consulting in the TED, TED talk you just did, because do you, you feel like part of, yes, educating ourselves is important. Do you feel like showing up and being that physical representation can do a lot for the next generation of leaders as well? Absolutely. Listen, people's mental models are getting shaped when you show up or I show up or when I'm working with a CEO uh, to shape a strategy or to even implement a culture change, whatever it may be. When I stand up in front of uh, an employee base, a thousand people, two thousand people, whatever it may be, there's a mental model shift that takes place. When I stand in front of our students here at the Harvard Business School, it's really important for me to be there because that's part of the way in which I do my work, being present and showing that not only is this possible, that this is normal. It is not unusual to have someone in front of you who looks different than you to do the work that we're doing. I think it's, it's, it's not only important, uh, but the only way that we can shape and reshape uh, people's mental models is by being out there yeah. and bringing our expertise as best as possible. Absolutely. So that's why I'm glad you do what you do. And I'm glad that you do what you do. <laughs> uh, because it, it, I would say, and I'm saying that really, it's funny because I see you and I'm like, I'm more inspired, it, you know, because you've you. laid the foundation for me. And I'm not even saying that just because you're on here, but you, you've Thank done you. so much. <laughs> and and Thank the, you. Oh, no, please. You're so welcome. You're so, I mean, I'm, I'm thanking you. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's interesting seeing a lot of people like yourself who empower me to continue to do this work. And then hopefully that cycle continues. Um, and that normalizes our, our, uh, feelings. And, you know, I come from a continent where we're at least one, you know, over a billion people. And I grew up in a, in a country where, you know, being black was, it's just a normal thing. So when you, when I came here, I was like, Oh, what is, what are you? What are you? It was an interesting adjustment because I had yeah. to, I was like, wait, well, yeah, it's just normal for me. Yeah. 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 You were mainstream. Yeah. I was mainstream. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Context matters, doesn't it? Yeah. Completely. It does. It does. Uh, let's talk about your, your recent talk. Um, you just did it. Yeah. You did the TEDx Cambridge or is that what it was? Yes, yes, yes. And, yes. and it, it launched uh, about a week ago. And in that talk, I talk about the relationship between language and culture and how treating language and culture separately will actually allow people to connect much more with each other than to hold on to any particular language or culture. And uh, I use uh, clear examples from the book to show that if you can speak a common language, you can convey in an unbiased way your culture to anyone. So, um, so, so that's the, the, the key message that I share in the TED Talk. And uh, I'm really excited that it's out because it gives people a chance to get a glimpse into some of this work without having to read 200 pages uh, <laughs> uh, first. So you don't have to commit to the book before you learn about some of the key ideas that are coming from the book. No, I'm definitely going to put the show notes, uh, put that in the show notes. Congrats on that. That's a big deal. Hey, uh, thanks. I, thanks very much. Were you nervous? I, I'm, <laughs> I, I've, done, I've done a couple of, the, uh, of TEDx talks this year. Uh, I'm fortunate to do that. I remember I couldn't sit down at all. 
<laughs> pacing, yeah. doing push-ups. I was doing ever. I was so nervous. <laughs> you were doing push-ups, man. I should have done push-ups. That's so funny. You know, um, so so there are a couple of things. So the the, the talk itself was at the Boston Opera House, which wow. is this beautiful location. I think there were about twenty five hundred people at least. Uh, so it was full. Uh, the venue was just gorgeous and beautiful, and the and and this particular group uh, who put on the talk are are extremely detailed and thorough. So we spent about ten weeks preparing leading up to the talk. So there was a lot of build, build building up, and for me, it was the first time where I was uh, going to give a talk in 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 a, in a style that was prescribed to me. So I had to learn. Uh, how to do that, uh, and I absolutely loved uh, ultimately learning how to do that, how to stand, how to convey the stories, etc. That's been the best part of my TED Talk experience. I learned so much, and after 20 years of speaking publicly, to think that, man, you can deconstruct and reconstruct uh, um, your way of speaking publicly is just extraordinary, but was I nervous? I think I was, uh, I had, you know, there's big nervous and there's little nervous. And yes. I had a lot of little nervous over time. But by the time I got on that stage, the little nervousness uh, that I had over time while I prepared, while I thought about each word and each transition, uh, all of that kind of melted away. It was just such a fabulous experience. And I'll tell you this, a group of my students, I currently have, two sections of 93 students each, so I have 186 students. A group of my students uh, attended the talk. So I knew they were in the room, and I really wanted to do the kind of uh, talk that they could be proud of. Uh, so, that, so that really shaped uh, a lot of my experience. Their presence was such a big deal to me. I appreciated that a lot. And so I, I, I was speaking to the 2,500 but I was also thinking a lot that my students were in the room. Yeah, I find that that helps a lot. And and you're so right about how the the nerves turn into excitement once you get on the that, stage. Yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> once you get on stage and you're passionate about it, it just it fades away, and, and you become if especially if it's mission focused, you become yeah. really inspired to show up for them. So, uh, Professor Sadal Neely, author of The Language of Global Success. Make sure you uh, cop that, okay? Make sure you cop that. That's what we kids say. Make sure you cop that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start saying that. That's so fun. Um, uh, before we close, I always ask uh, all my guests this question. My uh, mission statement, the reason why I do anything I do with podcast, speaking, consultant, is, um, is use your difference to make a difference. You know, that's, that's my why. Um, I, I firmly believe that each uh, one of us has the ability to do that. Sorry, what? I love that. Oh, okay. <laughs> make a difference. Okay. <laughs> so I, I like to ask my guests the same question. How do you, Professor Sadal, hmm. use your difference to make a difference? Wow. What a deep question, actually. I, I think I use my difference to make a difference by being present uh, and by generating work. Uh, that uh, uh, provides a different lens than the ones that are currently in our sphere and disseminating that work so that everyone is better equipped to 
work across boundaries, no matter who they are, no matter what they speak, no matter where they sit, so that ultimately we are not only impacting organizations positively, but also societies. Wow. Well said. And that's why she's on the show and I'm the one listening because I get to hear gems like that. And I hope all of you do. Oh, man. So th- th- that's amazing. And, um, oh, wow. No, this is me being selfish here for extra one more question before I actually go. <laughs> Are you uh, going to throw a, a, another question? Yeah, this is just, this is just the selfish, selfishness. But I, I, I feel like while I have you on here, I know you, you're very busy. Can you, can you talk about just, um, the challenges of cross-cultural communication. A lot of people, when I speak, mm-hmm. they talk about how, yeah, but people have different values. What do you mean? Like, I'm sure you talk about finding the commonalities and all that, but it's not as easy as to say, I don't have the same religion. I don't have the same thing. We don't eat the same food. It's not about food. How can I actually connect? What do you say to those people? Well, number one, values by definition uh, uh, are characteristic characteristics of what's important to us, number one, what are our norms, what are our attitudes, and what are our behaviors. And so to have different values doesn't necessarily have to put you in conflict. The first thing you have to do is you have to put your values uh, in check and not interpret what others are saying or doing using your values as your lens. That's the first failure point. You have to check your assumptions. You have to check your uh, attitude. You have to check uh, your uh, definition of what is important uh, to you uh, at the door and listen to other people and have enough room to hold your own values and that of others simultaneously. It's not a contest. It's the capacity to hold your own values and engage with that of others without friction, but instead with creating room to uh, do the work that you're meant to do if this is a global collaboration and otherwise to find room to accommodate new information that you may not hold. Yeah. Wow. Well said. And I, I promise I'm not going to be any more selfish, but I want to thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you so you much. Thank you very much. What great fun to, to talk to you. I wish you all the best until the next time. Thank you. And until the next time, ladies and gentlemen, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 